Miracy. This comparison that happens where we inflate the abilities in our mind of everybody else and we diminish our own, that I think is probably the best example of what it is. It has these thoughts that typically go along with it. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm in over my head. I'm a fraud. Do you feel like a fraud? Like you don't have what it takes to build a coaching business? You hear those nagging voices in your head telling you that nobody will ever hire you, or you're thinking, you're not a coach, not really, not like the others around you. But keep listening. This episode is for you because I have great news. You can learn how to silence that excruciating imposter syndrome. I'm Melinda Cohen, and you're listening to Just Between Coaches. I run a business called The Coaches Consult, and we're proud to have helped more than 70,000 coaches create profitable and thriving businesses. This is a podcast where we answer burning questions that newer coaches would love to ask a more experienced coach. Today, we're going to talk about imposter syndrome, which is loosely defined as doubting your abilities and feeling like a fraud. It interestingly, disproportionately affects high-achieving people who find it difficult to accept their accomplishments. Whenever we find ourselves outside of our comfort zone, imposter syndrome tends to creep in. And as a newer coach, it's easy to fall into that nasty downward spiral. And today I've invited Gary Frey to discuss this topic with me. Gary co-hosts the Anything But Typical podcast. It has roundtable conversations discussing entrepreneurship, leadership, and success on your terms. He's an author and has spent years coming into multiple businesses that were on their way to collapse and effectively turning them around and leading them to new levels of success. In the process of all these levels of success, Gary, like so many of us, faced the all-too-common challenge of imposter syndrome. Welcome, Gary. Thank you so much for having me, Melinda. I am so excited to have you on the show and excited to talk about this because I know we've been working with coaches as they're starting their business building journey. And this is something that happens everywhere to everybody. I know that's a broad statement, but I think it's probably true. But before we dive in, would you mind sharing a little bit more of your background? You have what some call an atypical background. (laughs) Well, that's nicely put. Uh, I have a I planned and God laughed career journey (laughs) that started (laughs) as a graphic designer early on. And I got invited in to do my first turnaround when I was at the ripe old age of 28. I'm now 60. And I didn't know what I was doing. I had no credentials to do it other than the things that this particular business owner and business coach that had been hired uh, were seeking, which was I had worked for a really hot shop in town. I had seen what was done and they were looking for somebody that came with batteries installed. And that was me. I was hungry and needed work and I loved what I did. So that was kind of the beginning of that journey. And I thought, oh, well, this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life. Had my name on the door. And three and a half years later, we were rocking and rolling. And I caught my partner's hand in the financial cookie jar. It was so 
traumatically damaging to me or just the trust that was destroyed. And so um, he said that he was going to stop and whatever. And so I caught him again. And that's when a lot of my God laughed part of the journey really began. I had no credentials whatsoever for a lot of the places where I've been taken to, um, other than the fact that I had fire in the belly and I had a healthy dose of Midwestern common sense. And I had been a good student of what made it work for other people and the things to avoid. All the jobs that I've had were master's preferred, bachelor's required, and I am a college dropout after two years during the greatest unemployment in history since the Great Depression, and that was in 1982. (laughs) So anyway, that's a little bit of my journey, and I got thrust into coaching um, by accident, quite frankly. Uh, I was working 70 hours a week at Bank of America, and I, I had a friend needing some help to get some clarity. I helped him, worked with him and his team for a year, one night a month, and it was really just kind of playtime for me. Then another guy said he heard about the same thing that I had done for those guys, wanted me to do the same thing. And then I actually introduced those two guys and merged those two guys into the same company. So it's just been a weird, wild ride of many different industries from bizjournals.com, which was you know one of the largest business journals across the U.S., to manufacturing companies, to other things that, again, I really don't have the credentials but I had some experience and I had just what I would say, common sense, get it done and ability to work with others. Now with the topic, you know, silencing the imposter syndrome, do you think your journey elevated the imposter syndrome for you? Do you think it helped you learn how to live with it or navigate it? Or how did your background impact your experience with the imposter syndrome? I think I hid it for a long time. Because I couldn't tell somebody, oh, hey, by the way, the reason I had to switch this job or that job was because I had a partner embezzling money. Couldn't do that. In Fortune 100 world, you can't go, oh, hey, you know, here's this gap of employment or here's, yeah, I didn't actually graduate. I had been given a job offer after my sophomore year after I'd done an internship and my advisor said, you got to take the job. I can't get grads placed and you're working with a really talented designer, you got to take the job, which made the full ride academic scholarship go away. So I would reveal it when asked reluctantly, ashamedly, but then it was one of those secrets that I just couldn't tell anybody else. So I just suffered in silence. And Mm. it wasn't really until I was coaching a woman that has had now 12,000 W-2 employees full-time. Big company. She said, Gary, I don't know what I'm doing. I said, Tanner, are you kidding me? You are the most accomplished female business owner in all of North Carolina that I know of. And I can't believe you're saying that. She goes, I only have two years of secretarial school. I said, so what? (laughs) You know, it doesn't really matter. And at that point, I realized every stinking CEO that I've worked with either coaching or worked alongside that has confided in me, has dealt with it. Everyone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, okay, Gary, one, you're not alone. (laughs) 
you got to just kind of blow the doors off on this thing and expose it for what it is. And I'm not the first that's decided to write about imposter syndrome. And there are people that are PhDs and clinical psychologists and psychiatrists that have a lot of expertise in that. And that's not my bailiwick. I just have my experience with working with a lot of high power CEOs. Now, before we get too far into the conversation, I know I defined it in the intro. How would you describe imposter syndrome? So I'm going to give you a verbal picture. This is the best picture that I've ever seen to describe it. And so imagine a one-inch circle. And in that one-inch circle, it says, what I know. And that one-inch circle is encompassed by a much larger circle. Let's say it's three feet in diameter. And in that three-foot diameter circle, it says, what I think everyone else knows. The reality is, we all know about what's in a one-inch circle. That's the reality. Yeah, there are some brainiacs that know more, but the reality is, is we all have a pretty finite understanding. But this comparison that happens where we inflate the abilities in our mind of everybody else and we diminish our own, that I think is probably the best example of what it is. It has these thoughts that typically go along with it. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm in over my head. I'm a fraud. If they only knew this about me, then I'd be exposed. Those are the kind of things that go hand in hand with imposter syndrome. Yeah, I love that that verbal picture. It's all about that comparison game. And over the last 18 years, I've been working with entrepreneurs of all types. And so I know the journey with the imposter syndrome. It's something that the bulk of the population experiences and deals with. Like you discovered, you're like, oh, I'm not alone. Hello here. I don't have to suffer yeah. in silence. Is it something that we, do we try to just avoid it? Do we learn how to live with it? Do we turn it around? Is it just, it's like, oh, here's the imposter syndrome. It's like, a signpost on our journey that says, oh, I'm on the right journey. The imposter syndrome is here. This is normal. Let's keep going. Like, can it be that natural if we begin to see it in a different way? Yeah, I think so. I think the biggest thing is to recognize it for what it is. And that is this voice inside that's just shouting you down, saying you're in over your head. You don't know what you're doing. Well, the reality is, most of us don't know what we're doing to the extent that we want to be. You know, we, we see everybody else's successes and we compare ourselves. Again, think of those circles. And I think social media has only exacerbated it when we see Instagram reels of everybody else. And it seems like, oh, man, they got it all together. While we're constantly replaying back our own behind the scenes reels. I think that's a huge thing. The reason I even wrote this book was I found seven really simple things that effectively silence it. It doesn't mean that it still doesn't chirp in your ears from time to time, but you can silence it like light eradicating darkness. It's that profound if you do these things. Can you share what some of those are? Sure. I call it seven weapons in this book that I've written. Still waiting for the publisher to actually do something with it, but it's called Silence the Imposter, Seven Weapons to Silence Imposter Syndrome. And the first one is to realize you're not alone. The reality is, 
unless you are a hardcore narcissist and sociopath or you're just completely devoid of reality, you're probably dealing with it at, or you deal with it from time to time. Because a lot of times we get thrown into new situations where we haven't done this or that before. Somebody sees the potential in you and says, oh, you should be able to do this. Or they haven't done their due diligence on you and they assume, oh yeah, this guy's done this many times. All of a sudden it might be a rude awakening when you get thrown on this or that job and you've never done it before. A lot of times people rise to the occasion, but it's terrifying. But that's part of learning and growing. And I think I had to have that in healthy doses and measures because I was primary breadwinner for our family of four. And I had no options, man. And I couldn't rely on my credentials. I couldn't rely on my family name or anything like that to open doors. It was all on me. So just realizing you're not alone is the first one. What's the second one? It's a really simple t-chart called Thrive Wither. I did it when I discovered my partner's improprieties. And I realized I had to leave my own company that had my name on the door. So I had to start all over, which is what brought me to Charlotte, North Carolina in 1994. And so at the ripe old age of 32, I had to say, all right, what's important? Where do I thrive? What are the things that I love doing that make me come alive? And what are the things that I might be decent at doing, but I'm just done with doing, or I don't enjoy doing, or I'm withering? And one of the things that was in my thrive column was I wanted to be in a place that was a pretty part of the country that had some proximity to family and that was a good place to raise a family. While my mentor was in New York City and Minneapolis, and neither he split time between those two cities, and neither one of those was going to be an option in my Thrive column for a number of reasons. And ever since that time, I, every job I've had to take, I look at the stuff in my Thrive column and what their job requirements are against the stuff that's in my wither zone. I take all of my coaching clients through the same thing, especially if they're in high growth mode. So a simple T-chart, you split the piece of paper vertically. On the left side, you write thrive at the top, and on the right side, you write wither. And start with your thrive, always start positive with the stuff that makes you come alive. And on the wither side, the stuff that makes you wither. What, whatever's draining your tank. And the reason that that is a weapon is if we are spending more time in the stuff that makes us come alive, we're listening less to the, oh, I'm in over my head. You're not thinking about it because you're in your drive zone. So that's, that's the second weapon. The third weapon is shine a light on it. And this came really from Tana Green, the woman that I was telling you about. She wrote a book called Creating a World of Difference. And shining a light on it meant that she exposed the fact that she had a child out of wedlock at age 15. She married the guy, had the baby, got beaten up so badly by this guy, puts her in the hospital and then abandons her and the child. And she decides at that point that she is going to go back to school two years later and graduate with a different graduating class with baby on her hip. All she had the money for really was to go to secretarial school, but she knew that she wanted to have her own home. She wanted to get remarried to the knight in shining white armor, and she wanted to have a business by the time she was 30. All those things happened 
And as she rose to some prominence, she couldn't talk about those things. Had a baby at 15, only had two years secretarial school, blah, blah, blah. But then she realized she needed to tell the story. So she's shown a light on it in a big way. And what she found out was it liberated her and it also liberated a lot of other people. And so it, that seems very masochistic and counterintuitive, but to admit, oh yeah, I didn't finish my degree. You don't have to lead with that and it doesn't have to be your identity. It shouldn't be, but you don't have to throw it in the corner and hope somebody doesn't find it. Right. That suffering in silence, like you were talking about at the beginning. And that's one of the things that has been a value for me is that transparency. And so I, I love the, the shine, the light on it. And it reminds me of that Marianne Williamson quote, or part of it anyway. You know, as we allow our light to shine, we give others uh, unconscious permission to do the same. Uh-huh. And it really is like, as you just were describing how it freed her, it also freed others to be like, oh, right, that whole I'm not alone and I can relate in certain ways to her story or situation. And it creates that freedom for everybody around you as well. You know, we've been talking about this as it relates to ourself as the person going on the journey, starting our business or starting that next chapter and how we experience imposter syndrome. But when we're working with clients and we see it coming up, how can we detect that with our clients, bring it up with them and help overcome imposter syndrome with our clients? It's really important. And it's what has been a massive defining moment in my life, serving others versus how you're being perceived. And I'll give you an example. I had an anonymous feedback when I was president of bizjournals.com and I had to do a lot of speaking. So I read one of these comment cards afterwards when I was flying back and it said something like this, Gary is really good at one-on-one -on -one in front of a large group, not so much. Mm. Wow. I mean, that filleted me in the heart. And so every time I had to speak and I've had to speak in front of a lot of people as well as other big events, and every time... I could see people tuning me out and I just got tongue tied. Fast forward to 2007 and I was in a private equity group and we had 300 ultra high net worth families around the country that were in our group and some quite famous people. And for three days with them present, I had to be the MC under the watchful eye of a very tough, discriminating CEO. And so every word was parsed and reevaluated, et cetera. And I was writing in my prayer journal the night before, bemoaning the fact that I can't speak well, I don't know what I'm doing, blah, blah, blah. And I was recalling this comment card that just filleted me. And I was saying, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. As I'm praying about this, this thought really came screaming through my mind. A servant is not to be concerned about how they're perceived. A servant is to be concerned about serving and focused on serving. Go serve them. And the next day, I have to do a welcome, and I've got hundreds of people in this beautiful venue. And, you know, all of a sudden I start getting Twitter pated inside. Uh oh, I don't know what I'm doing. And that thought, you just focus on serving them. Doesn't matter what they think about you, you focus on serving them. That was such a liberating move. And then at the end of that conference, a woman that had been in charge of all of the big events for all of the 
McDonald's franchisees worldwide. She was in this group and she came up to me at dinner and she said, I know what it takes to pull off these kind of events. You are so good in front of people. Awesome. <laughs> and I thought, oh, wow. <laughs> you know, are you kidding me? But it really does matter when we focus on serving versus how does somebody perceive us? Wow, what a liberty. I love that. And it just shifts the energy and dynamic instantly when we do that with our clients. Now, if we have a client that we're coaching and we observe that the imposter syndrome has taken over their body and being and has set up residency, can we just say to them, it's, you know, I'm noticing that I think you're experiencing imposter syndrome. Can we be that direct with our clients or are there other ways that we can bring this up with our clients? You know, I think if you do it, you have to use eye language, I think, which silences the chatter in their own head. And here's an example. So um, I could say, hey, Melinda, you are the best at this or that. And inside, you could be saying, oh, dude, you hardly even know me. And if you only knew this or that. But if I say, Melinda, I think you are really good at this and this is how it makes me feel. Well, all of a sudden, I've just neutralized that. But if you only knew, because I said, I think you're this way. You can't refute that because that's how I think. And then I said, you make me feel like this when I see you do that. That helps silence it. But I think if we come at it as, hey, I think you're, you're dealing with imposter syndrome, they may go, uh, I, I don't know. You could still say, well, here's, here's what that is. Do you ever feel this way or that way? Oh, yeah. But I think we have to be careful, just like in any other time of coaching. It's our job to almost do the judo move to where we change the energy and change the narrative from giving advice to where they see the discovery of it. Another thing that I'll say, comparison kills gratitude. It always does. Again, it goes back to that Instagram reel. I'm comparing your show reel with my behind the scenes reel and show reels always win what's behind the scenes. Always. I love that comment, that phrase that comparison kills gratitude. I've got a gratitude journal and often I'll sit down in my office before I really dive into work with my cup of tea and I'll just do a list of gratitudes as a way to start my morning. So the more that we can put our emphasis on that, it reminds me of your Thrive and Wither T-chart mm -hmm. that you were talking about. It's like, being in that place of gratitude and doing more of that minimizes how much energy we can put towards comparison. Well, you just listed the fifth weapon. <laughs> Ooh, we may get through all seven. All right, what's number five? <laughs> yeah, I mean, gratitude journal is super powerful. Um, ironically, I learned the power of gratitude when my world was completely upside down it was during that period of time, this darkness of the soul, that I had to find something to be grateful for. All of our the money that I had invested gone. I had two kids in college. I didn't know how in the world we were going to keep anything. Um, and so I had my house, but that was it. And it was in that time that I really saw the power of finding something to be grateful for because I did not want to wake up every morning. I was disappointed when I woke up. And yet I knew I needed to keep going. And then fast forward, I got to go through the truest leadership institute. And it's pretty well 
established institute. It's a week-long thing. It's a deep peeling back of the onion. It's a, an amazing uh, experience. But the most impactful thing that I got from that was three gratitude journal entries daily. I'm grateful for dot, 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 followed by a thought or a prayer about that. Love that. For me, it's like a rooting, a grounding. It aligns everything so that my energy, my emotions, my thoughts, my actions, my words, all of it can be aligned before I ever begin my day or how I end my day. 100%. Either way. Yeah, it's powerful. Now, quickly, okay, what's six and seven? What's uh, weapon number six? Embrace the anything but typical in yourself and others. And if we focus on the uniqueness of other people and we celebrate our own, we quit comparing ourselves to one another and we just celebrate the uniquenesses. So I think that's that's the sixth one. And then the final one, your coaches are going to love this one because this is the truth. I had a client, he's very, very bright. And I said, you're really bright. Why do you have coach? And his coach was my business partner at the time. And he goes, oh, that's easy. He goes, it's hard to read the label when you're inside the jar. So the seventh mm -hmm. weapon is to find somebody outside the jar to help you read the label. Love that analogy. Love it. I'm a big advocate for if you're going to be a coach or supporting others, you got to walk your talk and have your own coach because it's just, we can't get through our own stuff. It's why coaches are coaches. And I think that's so true, but I, I love the way you described it about finding somebody outside the jar so that you can read the label. And Gary, I know that we could keep talking all about this topic. I, I just want to summarize some of the things that we've had in this incredible conversation. And I really appreciate that you started this whole conversation sharing your story about how you suffered in silence, because I think so many people listening in are nodding their head going, oh my gosh, yeah, I get that. And the realization that you're not alone. And I love the verbal picture that you gave us about that really kicks off the comparison about how we inflate others and diminish our own view and and how it really is affecting the bulk of the population. It's just a natural part of our evolution. And I'm really glad that you shared the seven weapons, as you call them, to silence that I love how we talked about how to identify your thrive zone with that thrive and wither exercise that we can do for ourselves or even help our clients with and how we can detect this for our clients and and be of service to them and how to bring it up with their clients. I love the tip that you gave us to use the I language instead of you language. And I love that you gave us all seven of the weapons. What an incredible conversation. Gary, do you have any parting words for our listeners? If you listen to this podcast and if there's something that resonates with you, pay attention to that and do a little bit of a deeper dive into why did that resonate? The reality is we're all created uniquely and wonderfully. And the more that we embrace those things and the less that we compare ourselves with other people, I think the happier we are. And I I would also say, you know, I, I start every coaching session with what I call tell me something good. Yeah, we're going to deal with the messes and the problems or whatever. We're going to get to that. But let's get grounded on something good. There's something powerful about that, Melinda. I don't know. I'm not smart enough to understand the science behind it, but all I know is, is it works. Yes, it does. 
Well, thank you for listening to this episode of Just Between Coaches. And also a big thank you to Gary for this incredible conversation. You can find out more about him on LinkedIn or at trustbgw.com. That's trust, the letter B, G, W.com. Gary, thank you so much for coming to the show. Melinda, you're such a gracious host. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Melinda Cohen, and you've been listening to Just Between Coaches. Just Between Coaches is part of the Mayor CFM podcast network, which also includes such shows as Self-Awakened Lifestyle and Once Upon a Business. Cynthia Lamb produced this episode. I wrote this episode with Mishi Lance. She assembled the episode. And Danny Eney is our executive producer. Post-production was by Post Office Sound. If you want to listen to upcoming great episodes on Just Between Coaches, please follow us on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you like the show, please leave us a starred review. It's the best way to help us get these ideas to more people. Miracy. And so the tailor, having gathered together the beautiful scraps, began to sew. He stitched and he sewed and he sewed and he stitched. And by the morning time, he had made himself a beautiful coat. Now, when he wore his coat into the market, everyone admired it so much that the tailor decided to wear the new coat everywhere. And that's what he did. He wore it and wore it and wore it until it was all worn out. Or was it? In each episode of Once Upon a Business, Lisa shares a fairy folk or traditional tale and then extracts rich business lessons that are applicable for entrepreneurs, coaches, and course creators. Stories always take us on a journey from one place to the next. Sometimes this journey is literal, sometimes it's metaphorical, but always we find ourselves transformed. This story, The Tailor's Coat, originating from Europe, takes us through a literal transformation of the pieces of cloth and yet somehow teaches a powerful lesson. It does speak to a common entrepreneurial journey. Many of us start out working for someone else and give them everything we've got. Perhaps the tailor finally deciding to make something for himself is similar to the entrepreneurial desire to begin to create a business for ourselves. We take the scraps, the skills that we've developed, the experience that we've gained, and we launch our own business. I think it's an incredibly important skill for an entrepreneur, for anybody running a business, to be able to know that creating something out of nothing is always possible. And it's often the way forward because it's out of the scraps of what's been done before. It's out of almost the missing pieces that are not quite there that we can actually bring our creativity and bring our determination and bring our vision to create something really wonderful, really brand new and really beautiful. And then we can walk around the town with it. You know, we can be proud, we can step out and we can wear it until it's almost worn out, but not quite. 
To hear more of Lisa's stories and learn the deep lessons they carry, make sure you subscribe to Once Upon a Business wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you every other week with a brand new episode.